hasn't sold. Many of you are very familiar with him, and that's Dr. Overstreet. He was a former preaching professor at uh, Northwest Baptist Seminary, and we're looking forward to what God will do in his life after his house sells and after he has the opportunity to move. But we hope, we're grateful that he is here and still here in the area, as it's always good to fellowship with him. And so let's give him a warm welcome as he comes to open the word. Well, it is a joy for my wife and me to be here. It's always uh, just a pleasure to gather together and see you folks and, and just to find out what the Lord's doing in your lives as well. And it's great to know that everybody is prospering financially and there are no difficulties in our culture and our time and everything is wonderful. The stock market is skyrocketing. You hadn't noticed that. Well... It uh, hasn't affected, it has affected apparently some of the things like buying houses and many of you have already asked us what's happened with our house and the answer is not much. Uh, it's still there. If you want to buy a house, it's still for sale. We have had in the last couple of weeks uh, some people come and look at it and we think maybe the same person came twice. But since we were not there, you know, they always want you to leave when the realtor brings people in. But we think the same person has come twice. Um, so that may be a good sign, or it may be that things will never materialize. We don't know what the Lord's doing, but God does, and we just continue to trust Him. In the meantime, it does give us the opportunity to, to be here and share with you folks, and that's always a joy. And this morning, uh, there is an outline in the back of your bulletin. You perhaps noticed it with some blank spaces, and I'm going to try to remember to tell you what all the words are that go in there. Now, sometimes I get on a roll and I forget to stress a word. And if I do, don't hesitate. Just put your hand up and say, what was that word? And I'll back up and remind you what that word should have been. I want to start out with um, something I just recently came across. This uh, individual wrote, reasons why I'm quitting sports. I'm not going to attend football in the fall. I'm not going to attend baseball in the summer. I'm not going to attend basketball in the winter. I've had it. I've quit attending sports once and for all. And here are my 11 reasons. Number one, every time I went, they asked for money. Number two, the people I sat next to didn't seem very friendly. Number three, the seats were too hard and not comfortable at all. Number four, I went to many games, but the coach never came to call on me. Number five, the referees made decisions I could not agree with. Number six, the game went into overtime. I was late getting home. Number seven, the band played music I had never heard before, and it wasn't my style. Number eight, it seems that games are always scheduled when I want to do something else. Number nine, I suspect I was sitting next to hypocrites. They came to see their friends, and they talked during the whole game. Number ten, I was taken to too many games when I was a child. Number 11, I hate to wait in traffic in the parking lot after the game. You ever hear things like that related to church, maybe? Well, here are some things that I've observed over my ministry. Why people don't want to come to church worship. Now, I know I'm, I'm talking to the choir this morning because you're all here. All right. But just in case you're thinking about skipping church next week, this is for you. All right. Here's some observations that I've observed over my ministry. My kids are active in sports, and the games are always on Sunday. <laughs> we go to the games. 
Or my kids have a big test on Monday, so they can't come to church on Sunday. And obviously I have to stay home with them. We were up late on Saturday night. We were watching TV. We were going to a concert. We were, you know, wherever it happens to be. And so I, we slept in on Sunday. Susie didn't feel well, so we all stayed home with her. And all of us means mom, dad, and three other kids. And all stayed home to take care of Susie. Or how about this one? We're leaving for vacation on Monday. We need Sunday to get ready and pack. Or how about this one? We can worship sitting in our cabin or on our boat or out hunting in the fields just as easily as we can in church. Or another one, I worked hard all week long. I need Sunday to rest. And I could go on and list others. And probably many of them you've heard and maybe some of them you've even used. So why should we attend church worship anyway? I mean, why are you here? What's the value of it? More importantly, what what does the Bible have to say about it? So this morning, in the outline, you'll notice that there are two specific reasons that I believe the Bible gives us why we should be involved in church worship. And I've listed them for you, number one and number two. Number one, attend church worship because it's biblical. And then number two down there, attend church worship because we need it. And there are no blanks in those. You notice that? I want to make sure you get those points. You don't have to write anything in to get those down. But let's take a look at what the Bible has to say. And we're going to start in the book of Acts. All right? So we were in Acts for chapter 2 as Pastor read from chapter 2. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2 again. Why attend worship? Because it's biblical and Acts illustrates it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, and Pastor Joe read from verse 37 down through 47. Number one under that, converts. That's the word that goes in that blank space. Converts are added to the church. Here on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached. 3,000 people trusted the Lord as their Savior. And they were added together to this body that became known as the church. So converts are added to the church. And I want you to notice what they benefited from. Notice verse 41, 42. It tells us then those that had received his word were baptized that day. There were added about 3,000 souls. And then observe what happens in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, they were learning what the scriptures said as the apostles taught the word of God. So they gathered together and they benefited from the teaching. In addition to that, it tells us in verse 42, they were involved in fellowship. There was a harmony between them. We need one another to help each other and to encourage each other and to support each other. And we gather that together as we gather together in the worship. Notice it also tells us that they were involved in breaking of bread. That's the observance of the, Lord, the, uh, the ordinance, the Lord's Supper. And we already saw in verse 41 that they were baptized. So here we are involved in the fellowship of the ordinances as well. Verse 42 also tells us that they were gathered together in prayer. One of the things that's encouraging to us each one as we're involved in the ministry of the church is how we can stand with each other and pray for each other and help each other and share the burdens that we have as we bring them before God. All of that's involved because converts are added to the church. Over in Acts chapter 6, that brings me to number 2 on the outline. 
By the way, we're going to be looking at lots of scripture passages this morning. So keep your fingers nimble. If you've got arthritis, I'll try and give you a little bit of extra time to get there. But over in Acts chapter 6, number 2, people are identified with the church. People are identified with it. Let us Acts chapter 6, verse 1. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now notice we've got Hellenistic Jews. Those are Christians, people who trusted the Lord. We've got the native Hebrew Jews. These are people who were living in two different kinds of cultures. The native Hebrews were the ones that tried to follow all of the Hebrew customs, all the Jewish traditions. The Hellenistic Jews were the ones that were more inclined to follow the Greek way of life. But they're still together in the ministry of the church, along with widows. See the variety of people who are here? People are identified with the church. In addition to that, it tells us that the twelve were there, verse 2, those are the apostles. So we've got Hellenistic Jews, we've got traditional type Jews, we've got widows who are there, we've got the apostles who are there, and they're trying to deal with the problem, so they come up with, I think, what are become the very first deacons in the local church. So we've got leadership that begins to be involved in the church. And then when you get to verse 5, it tells us the whole congregation is there. You've got all kinds of people who are there. People identified with the church. So converts are added to it, and those converts are all kinds of people. Indeed, before you get done with the context, it tells us that even priests were trusting the Lord and being added to the church. So we've got this wide variety of people all involved in the local church. Now, one of the good things about a local church is it's composed of people. One of the bad things about a local church is it's composed of people. I remember early in my ministry, I had a deacon in our church, a really godly man. We were out, he and I were out making a visit one day. And I remember him telling me, he was the first, he, he was the first one I ever remember saying this. He said, you know, pastor, I could really enjoy the church if it just weren't for the people. You ever think that way? People are people. But that's why we need each other. We have, we, we have differences. We have different cultures. We have different backgrounds. In some cases, we may speak different languages as our native tongues. But we're all involved in the ministry of the church. People identified with the church. Do you identify with it? Do your kids know that you identify with it? Let me tell you a little bit about what my wife and I did. Our first daughter, her name is Lori... She was born on a Wednesday. The very next Wednesday, she was in church. She was seven days old. Now, it just so happened that that was the Wednesday that I was ordained to the gospel ministry. And my wife had our one-week-old daughter, and my wife and my daughter sat on the front row and watched the whole thing. My daughter remembers it so well. (laughs) Well, maybe not. But she was there. Our second daughter was born on a Sunday. She was born about 5 a.m. in the morning. And I was there when she was born. And that same Sunday I preached the morning church service. I was pastoring. By the way, one week later, the next Sunday, guess where she was? She was in church. When she was exactly seven days old. Our third child, our son, Reg, he was born on a Friday. The Friday right after Thanksgiving. 19-inch snowstorm that week in Detroit area where he was born. 
So that Sunday, he didn't go to church. He was only two days old. He didn't make it. But the very next Sunday, at the age of nine days, he was in church. You ask any of my three kids, our three kids, you ask any of them, and they will tell you that from their earliest recollections, they know that we were identified with a local church. And I'm grateful that all three of them are still identified with local churches. Our daughter in Indiana, our daughter in Texas, and our son here in the state of Washington. Identified with a local church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11. The book of Acts chapter 11. Notice this is when the Paul and Barnabas are at the church at Antioch up north of Jerusalem. And Barnabas had gone off to Tarsus to find Saul in verse 25 of Acts chapter 11, and he found him. It tells us in verse 26, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were called Christians in Antioch. That's where they were first called Christians. Christians. Are in the local church. That's number three. Christians compose the local church. Can a person be a Christian without being in the church? Yeah, it's possible. But it's kind of like a soldier who doesn't have an army, or an author who doesn't have a reader, or a salesman who doesn't have a customer, or a bee that doesn't have a hive, or a student who never goes to classes. Those situations can occur, but that's certainly not the most satisfying way for things to be. Neither is it true for the church. So Acts illustrates it. The Apostle Paul confirms it. That's capital B in your outline. He confirms it by fellowship standards. That's the word that goes in there, fellowship standards. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I just want to point your attention to a couple of quick verses. And we don't have time to develop all of these texts, but I do want to point out some things. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice Paul writes, and he's writing to the church at Corinth. Those are the people to whom he's writing. And he says in verse, well, let's pick it up at verse 14. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What he's saying is that in the local church, there's a distinction. You don't have fellowship of believers and unbelievers. Now that doesn't mean an unbeliever can't attend the local church. But they don't compose it. They're not, the, they're not the, the backbone of it. They're not the ones who provide the leadership in it. Because there's no connection that we have unless we have a connection in Christ. There are fellowship standards. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Just, you're in 2 Corinthians. Just back up to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 16, number 2 there. By offerings received. Number 2. By offerings received. Notice Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches at Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. It was customary as the church gathered together on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, by the way, that they, that's the time that they took the collections. That's the time they took the offerings. 
Paul says that's one of the things that goes on on the first day of the week in the ministry of the local church. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is number 3 by leadership oversight. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn there just quickly with me. I'll show you just a couple of quick verses. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And you can take time later on to read all of these texts. But chapter 3 verse 1. You notice Paul writes, It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And then Paul goes on to describe the overseer, the elder, the pastor. Then he gets down to verse 8. He talks about deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, so forth. And Paul's talking about the necessity of leadership in the ministry of the local church as he writes to Timothy, who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So Paul sets forth leadership oversight, and that's in the local church. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that brings us to number 4, by discipline requirements. You ever stop to think that the church needs discipline? It does, just like a home needs discipline. And Paul in 1 Corinthians deals with all kinds of difficulties in that local church. Boy, if there was a church that had problems, the Corinthian church had problems. Now, every once in a while I hear people say, Oh, if only I could have just been in the early church when everything was so wonderful. Well, you've never read 1 Corinthians. Things weren't always so wonderful. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's dealing with the case where a man was living in immorality with his stepmother. So he's sleeping with his stepmother. And the church wasn't doing anything about it. And Paul calls them to account for it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells them that they need to set the... He talks about the leaven and it's, it's evil. And he says they need to get it out of the local church. There is discipline. By the way, it's a fascinating thing. As you read through 1 Corinthians, and they, they were at odds with each other. There were schisms in the church. You know, some people said, oh, I follow Paul. And some people said, no, I follow Apollos. And there was these divisions within the church and carnality within the church and arguments within the church. They didn't know what to do in their marriages and they didn't know how to conduct themselves in their business. And Paul says they were going to lawsuits against each other. But here's the intriguing thing with all of the problems in that church. Paul never once said that they should stop worshiping together. Never once. They had all these problems. And still they were gathering together on the first day of the week. Paul never said they were supposed to stop. That's an amazing thing. So sometimes people say, well, I didn't like the way that happened, so I'm going to quit going to church. You never find that in the scriptures. The problems are there, absolutely. People are, people are sinful. People have problems. But the church is still God's plan for this age. By the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I am convinced that the apostle deals with this same sinner that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 5. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he has repented. And Paul there says, receiving back into your fellowship. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11. So the book of Acts illustrates it. The writings of the Apostle Paul confirm it. I want you to take a look at uh, Revelation chapter 2. The book of Revelation chapter 2. Because this brings me to capital C. Jesus verified it. 
I don't know if you have a Bible with uh, ink that's red for the words of Jesus. It just so happens, I don't think you have to have it, but it just so happens that my Bible does. So as I read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the words of Jesus are in red. And I think that that originally got put in because somebody somewhere thought that the words of Jesus were more important than other words. I don't think that's the case. You know, the words of Jesus are authoritative, but so are the words of Paul, and so are the words of Peter, and so forth. You know, they're all authoritative if they're in the Word of God. But it is interesting, as you read through Revelation, to notice that in these chapters, Jesus is speaking. And this is about the year 95 A.D. Jesus has resurrected from the dead 60 plus years earlier and now he's up in heaven and he gives a revelation to John, his, his apostle. And notice chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. In verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. Chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. Chapter 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. Chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. Do you get the impression that Jesus is concerned about the church? Seven different churches, seven different cities, and he names every one of them by name. And he has a message for each one of them. Now, if there was a time that Jesus was going to say, I think I'm done with the church, this would have been a good spot. But remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. And here it is all these years later. And he's still involved in the church. Why should we involve ourselves in the worship of the church? Because it's biblical. Number two, because we need it. You know, a lot of times people say, well, I want to go there because it helps me. Okay, let's find out how it helps us. We need it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews. We need it, capital A, to worship our Lord. The book of Hebrews is dealing with... I believe, the church in the city of Jerusalem. Some people think it's directed to the church at Rome. In either case, whether you think it's to the church at Rome or the church at Jerusalem, it's written to the church. Either case, I think the church at Jerusalem. But as the writer is addressing the church, notice what he says in chapter 12, verse 28. Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's the way the New American Standard reads it. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have an NIV? Hold your hand if you got an NIV. All right, there's lots of you. If I remember correctly, the NIV translates it, worship God acceptably. Is that right? Yeah. The NASB translated, translates it acceptable service, but that word that it translates service is a word that typically means service involved in worship. So I think the NIV has the idea when it says worship. The NASB has the idea because it's worship service, and it's hard to get that all together in one translation. So we've got differences in approach. But the idea is we're involved in worship. 
we worship our God through the ministry of the church. We worship Him when we sing. We worship Him when we pray. We worship Him when we hear the testimony of the Word of God through the reading and the scriptures and the preaching. We gather together to worship our Lord. That's why we need it. Stories told about a man that once told his pastor, I can worship God in my garden at home just as much as I can worship in church. And sometime later, the pastor was over at the man's house, and there was a fire in the fireplace. And without saying a word, the pastor just reached over, took the tongs, reached into the fire, took out one ember, and set it out on the hearth. Guess what happened? It turned to black ash. It was just, it died. The rest of the fire is still in there, roaring away. And that one ember just died. You take it out of the fire and it dies. And the parishioner looked up at his pastor and he said, You don't need to say a word. I'll be in church Sunday. We need it. We're going to worship God. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. The book of Ephesians, chapter 4, capital B. We need it to be equipped. That's the word that goes in there. Equipped for ministry. Notice what the Apostle Paul writes, beginning at verse 11. He's talking about the Lord after he ascended back to heaven. He says in verse 11, He, that is the Lord, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Okay, why did he give pastors? Why did he give teachers? Why did he give evangelists? And here's what the answer is, beginning at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. In love. We're gathered together to be equipped for ministry. That's what the church does. Many years ago, I heard a fellow preaching on this text, and he summarized this whole text, verses 11 through 16, in one sentence. And I wrote it down, and after looking it over a few times, it's just in my head. He says that it goes this way. The man of God equips the people of God with the word of God for the service of God. And that's what the church is all about. The man of God equips the people of God with the word of God for the service of God. That's exactly what this text is saying. That's what the church is all about. We're supposed to be equipped for ministry. And this is where we find it. There's a story told about two men. One's named Jim Smith and the other's named Ron Jones. Jim Smith went to church one Sunday morning. 
And he heard the worship team just ruin a song. And he winced at that. He saw a teenager talking when other people were praying. He felt certain that the usher was really watching to see what he would put in the offering plate. And that irritated him. Five times by his actual count, he found a grammatical mistake when the preacher was preaching the sermon. And during the closing song, he just slipped out, muttering to himself, that was a waste of time. On the other hand, Ron Jones went to church. And he heard the keyboardist play an arrangement of A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, which just stirred his heart to worship the Lord. A special missionary offering was received, and he was rejoicing the fact that his church was doing something to meet the spiritual needs around the world. When the preacher preached, he just touched his heart because it met a need that he had in his life. And as he walked out of the church, he thought to himself, how could anybody not just be brought close to God at a time like this? The intriguing thing is that both men went to the same church on the same Sunday. Typically, going to church is a lot like going to the bank. What you get out of it pretty well depends on what you put into it. We need to put more in if we're going to get more out. Back to the book of Hebrews again, chapter 10. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Capital C on the note, on the outline. We needed to stimulate each other. We needed to stimulate each other. Look at chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. The writer says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. We say, wow, that's so great. We can come into the very presence presence of God based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us and he invites us to come right in with him marvelous and the writer says that's right and having said that he writes verse 24 and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and then he writes verse 25 not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, even in New Testament times, there were people who didn't want to go to church. When the church assembled together for worship, there were people even back in the time of the New Testament. And they said, nah, I think I'd rather go fish. No, I've got to get my kids ready for you know, activities. I'm getting ready to go on vacation. It's just too hard to go to worship together. That was going on back then. And that was the habit of some. And the writer says that ought not to be our habit. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. 
That's the habit of some. But instead, stimulating each other to love and to good works and encouraging each other. And one of the ways that we can do that is simply by being together. And really listening when we talk to people. When I was pastor in Indiana, there's a man in our church, Chuck Yeager was his name. By the way, there is a Chuck Yeager, you remember, who was a jet fighter pilot and all that. This is not the same Chuck Yeager. Different Chuck Yeager. Although this guy was a pilot, but he didn't fly jets and, you know, in war and all that. But uh, Chuck was a, he was a very gregarious, outgoing kind of a person. And one day, just out of curiosity, just to find out what would happen, as people walked into the church in the morning, he would meet them. And he'd, he'd be smiling, and they'd say, Hi, Chuck, how you doing? He'd say, Oh, I'm doing just terrible. Thanks for asking. And, okay, and they just walked right on. And he did that with a whole group of people. I'm doing just terrible. Thanks for asking. Smiled real big while he said it. Not one person caught that he was doing terrible. And it just blew right by it. Stories told of Franklin Delano Roosevelt while he was President of the United States that he was in a long receiving line and his bodyguard, I don't think they called them Secret Service back in his days. They call, I don't know what they called them, but he had his bodyguard standing right next to him. And he was in this long receiving line and people were walking by and shaking his hand. Hello, Mr. President. How are you, Mr. President? He was joined through the routine and all of a sudden he started saying, Hi, Mr. President. How are you, Mr. President? He'd smile and say, I'm fine. I just shot my mother-in-law. How? That's so wonderful, Mr. President. They walk right on. And he did this with, you know, several people. And finally, the bodyguard leaned over and said, Mr. President, I'm sure she deserved it. (laughs) He was the only one listening. You know, we gather together in the assembly. And one of the things we can do to encourage and help and support each other is to listen. To let people know that we're on their side. I read an a activity of what a church is supposed to be doing. You know, you talk, we talk about making our church user-friendly. Well, here's a church that was trying to be user-friendly. And this is what they said they were going to do. We're putting out cots for people who say Sunday is their only day to rest. This is no excuse Sunday. They're going to have a no excuse Sunday. We're putting out cots for people who say Sunday is their only day to rest. For those who say if I go to church the roof will fall in, we have hard hats that meet OSHA specifications. The people who say the church is too cold will be asked to change places with the people who say it's too hot. That should solve those problems. The people who don't like hypocrites who attend church will be giving stones to throw at them. Sin will never be mentioned in the service, only love. Cotton balls will be provided for the use of people who complain the pastor's too loud. And hearing aids will be given to those who say he speaks too softly. Microwave dinners will be given to those who say they can't attend church and also have time to cook on Sunday. The subject of money will never be mentioned. No offering plates will be passed. And the concept that church have needs will never be mentioned. The worship team will only do music in the style of those on the top ten chart. With lots of very attractive people getting emotionally, uh, extremely emotional. There will be a special area with grass and trees and a pond. For people who only feel close to God when they're fishing or surrounded by nature. 
Stenographers will be provided for people who say the pastor speaks too fast. Bibles that have only pictures, no words, will be given to those people who say the Bible is just too difficult to read. For those who stayed up too late on Saturday night, the lights will be dimmed. A wooden frame will be put around the pulpit so it looks more like a television set. (laughs) Most of the messages will be about how wonderful we all are. Except for there will be some messages about the things God is going to do for you because you deserve it. What more could a church do to be user friendly? These accommodations will make it possible for everyone to attend and have a great time. Except, of course, for those few people who really want to come and worship God. So why are we in church? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Another reason why, capital D on your outline... We needed to exercise spiritual gifts. We needed to exercise spiritual gifts. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10. Peter writes, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The Lord gifts us with abilities. My abilities are not the same as yours. Yours are not the same as the person sitting across the room. God gifts us with abilities. By His grace, according to His plan. Peter says, we need to gather together so we exercise those gifts. Now I know some gifts we may think are you know, more spectacular. Pastor Joe has the gift, you know, he's pastor. And he, we stand up here and we preach and we say, there's the important gift. I, I just, I'm just a little helper. I'm not much good. It reminds me of the story of an orchestra. The orchestra was practicing and they were playing this really spectacular number. And one of the participants was a piccolo player. And as the orchestra was playing and the organ was sounding and the drums were beating and the trumpets were blaring, the little piccolo player said, my piccolo's not very important. And so just temporarily he quit. Just quit playing. And when he did, the conductor immediately stopped. And the conductor looked around and said, where is the piccolo? Orchestra conductors know when something's missing. And so does God. If you're not exercising your spiritual gift in the assembly of the church, God knows. He's a lot better than most orchestra conductors. So we needed to exercise our spiritual gifts. And capital E, that we needed to observe the ordinances. Romans chapter 6. Book of Romans chapter 6. We have the ordinance of baptism. Again, remember, Paul, as he writes the book of Romans, is writing to the church at Rome. He's not writing to this unknown group of believers floating around out there in Never Never Land. He's writing to a church. A gathered together of believers in the city of Rome. 
And he writes, chapter 6, I'll start at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The church observes the ordinance of baptism. Why? To show the fact that we have a union. We have a union with Christ. And we have a union with one another. Baptism testifies to our union in Christ. And it shows through the local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The other ordinance of the church is the Lord's Supper. And we're going to be observing that one today. Notice verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And you go on and read the rest of the chapter. And he talks about observing the Lord's Supper. When we do that, we are demonstrating our communion with one another. You see the difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper? In baptism, we demonstrate our union with Christ and with each other. In the Lord's Supper, we demonstrate our communion with Christ and with one another. Our fellowship with Him and as a body. It's a testimony that we are together. Not just the union that we have, which is once for all, but our fellowship, which continues day by day, month by month, year by year. It may very well be that some of us here have been careless in our gathering together to worship the Lord. It may very well be that some of us, we determine whether or not we're going to go to church by all the other things that may, be, may get on our calendars. God wants it to be the priority. He wants us to identify, to demonstrate that we belong to Him. How's your relationship today? We need our identity with the church for the benefit of our kids, sure. And I wanted to bring up our kids so they'd be identified with a local church. And we sought and tried hard to make sure that took place. But more importantly yet, is my relationship with my Savior. And whether or not one day He's going to look back over my life. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want for my life. And that's what I want for yours. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us the instruction of your word. 
And now it's our responsibility to be obedient. Give us that determination in our lives today to put the priority where it needs to be to honor you, to gather together, to encourage, to love, to good works, to exercise the gifts that you've granted to us, to serve you, Lord, because we're united, we are, we are united to you, and we desire to fellowship with you and with, with, and with one another. Draw us to yourself, even now. In the name of Jesus, amen.